We saw it in Sunday school. Many people in our world connect the book of Jonah with a fish. But we saw last week that the book of Jonah is not about a fish. The book of Jonah is, in fact, about people. And it's about two types of people. It's about a people who don't know God, whose hearts aren't aligned with God. And it's a book about those that do, that do know God and know what he's like. And what we see in the book of Jonah is both groups of people, both groups of people need to be pursued by God and his grace. Jonah, as we saw in the first six verses last week, was commissioned by God to go to the Ninevites, to go to this city west, this great city east, sorry, to bring the message of saving grace to them so that they might know the heart of God. Arise and go to Nineveh, we saw, but but Jonah arises and flees to Tarshish. He doesn't like God's mission because He doesn't share God's heart. And so what we see in the book of Jonah is, yes, it's about the Ninevites coming to hear about God, but the book of Jonah is in many ways more about God going after Jonah than Jonah going to the Ninevites. I'm going to see this afternoon three things. We're going to see the tragedy of unbelief, firstly. We're going to see the ironies of this scene and the first 16 verses that we're looking at. And finally, we're going to see the grace of God. Because where we kick things off uh, this week, we see that there's this natural disaster that hits Jonah and his ship as they're headed to Tarshish. But we know in verse 4 this is not quite natural. These hardened mariners are afraid. They're afraid of this storm that has hit their ship. And this means two things. If you've got scared sailors, it means firstly, when they left port, the conditions were not as they are. A freakish storm has occurred. But something more where is suggested by that, that this, this storm is not normal. Uh, these sailors would have known these waters. And the storm, the chaos that they're placed into is not something perhaps that that they've seen or experienced before. And these sailors are scared. But the storm is not the tragedy in this section. The tragedy in this section is the response of those who are in this boat. Why don't you open up to Jonah? Have a look there in verse 5. You see how these sailors are responding to this storm that they're in the middle of. The sailors were afraid and they cried to each other. They cried out to his own God and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. You can see how they're responding. They're responding in two ways. They're responding in a very practical way. They're using all of their human wisdom and what they know of how to survive something like this. They're making the boat lighter in order to preserve it against this storm. But they're not just doing that, are they? Um, We have the image often of them throwing the cargo over. But that's not all they're doing because 
look at the start of verse 5. All the sailors were afraid and each cried out to his own God. Desperate times call for desperate measures. And it seems if all else fails, pray. Uh, You might have heard it said that there is no atheist in a foxhole. That is, you know, a a hole that uh, soldiers dig under the threat of the enemy. There's no atheist in a foxhole. The point is, I think, by that saying, is that when we get desperate enough, we as humans cry out to God. And this is a pretty well a universal human reality. Now, this is, I think, um, why the famous atheist Christopher Hitchens was so insistent that upon his death, and in the months at least leading up to his death, he was so insistent that he would not turn to God. He would not begin believing in God. He would not become all gooey and weak and start to talk about God. He was so insistent on that. And I think he was so insistent on it because he was scared. He was scared that that might actually happen. Because what it shows is that even the most hardened of atheists, even the most, it seems, um, the, the, the person most opposed to God, all human people deep down have these impulses these impulses that there is someone and something beyond our world and our own existence. And in many ways, all people are looking for salvation. Uh, We see that in our second reading from Romans chapter 1. We see that in in Paul's point as he writes to uh, the church in Rome, his point is that humans were created in the image of God and that's something that all humans contain. But, and and what that means is that deep down within all of us, we're all created to know God. But Paul's point is, as much as we're created to know God, what we do as humans is we suppress and we push down the knowledge of that truth. It bubbles up. And we push it down. And Paul outlines all the ways in which we as humans suppress the truth of who God is and how we are to respond to him. And often we see the way that that suppression works itself out. It can work it out in traditional approaches to religion. It can work itself out in modern approaches like atheistic secularism. They're all attempts to suppress the knowledge of who God is. Because when we come into a desperate situation, we actually find what we're clinging to. When we're put, when we're put in a situation where death is imminent, we're forced to realise what we're actually cling, clinging to. On the 13th of May, 1981, in St. Peter's Square in Vatican City, Mehmet Ali Aga fired 13 shots at Pope John Paul II and two of those shots caught his flesh. And as he was hit with the bullets, Pope John Paul II cried out, Maria, 
Maria. I find that surprising because Mary cannot help anyone in that situation. And that's exactly the situation that these men are in in this boat because these men are crying out to a God who cannot help them because it was the God of Israel. It is Yahweh. It is the one and true God who has brought this storm upon this boat. He is the God, as we'll see, um, Jonah confessed, of the sea and the land. And it's only him who can help them in their time of need. And so the response of these sailors is tragic because here they are so desperate and here they are calling out to a God who cannot do anything to help them. But there is a response in this section that is more tragic still. Did you notice what Jonah's doing? All the time, while these sailors are so desperately fearful. What would you expect him to be doing? Here's a man who's grown up under the knowledge of God. He knows the stories. He knows God's covenant with Israel. He knows the promises of God. He knows God himself and he's a prophet of God. What would you think a man to be doing? Maybe praying? At least for himself, if not for others? Have a look what Jonah's doing in verse 5. He's asleep. The one who is commissioned by God, the one who's been sent by God to preach to those who don't, is asleep. He's asleep while people are caught in fear. I don't know how you respond, but... Often as we go out from our gathering here on a Sunday, we move into a world that in many ways is, is quite hostile to God and Christian things. And often we find ourselves in conversations, questions are put before us. And how do we normally, normally respond? Well, I think we respond in often two or three ways. It's a fight, flight or freeze almost. It's often, it's flight. You know, when someone says, do you really believe that as a Christian? Is that what Christians believe still? And you can hear or you feel the tension kind of rise in you. And all you want to do is just get out of there. It's flight. Or sometimes it's fight though. You know, when someone asks you a question, you give them a response and they're dismissive. And you, you actually, you don't want to take that. You want to, well, there's a sense in which you want to attack them and their position. Or often I think it's just, we freeze. We don't know quite what to say. We feel inadequate and incapable to present any kind of valid, sensible, cogent, coherent response to people's questions. In the situation that Jonah is in, these sailors are worshipping other gods. They're crying out to these gods who can't help. Why? 
They're crying out to these gods who can't help, help because they don't know any better. They don't know what to do. And Jonah cares nothing for their plight. See, you know, the people that we see around us, do you know what? The people in our world, the people that ask us questions, the people that we might be even upset with as we seek to give them a response, those people are afraid too. Often they don't look like they're afraid, but those people are afraid. They're afraid in so many ways. They're afraid of not being able to cope in life. They're afraid of if they stop working, they won't have, they'll lose their fragile, self-made identity. They're afraid of being forgotten in their death. This fear uh, is captured in the captain in Jonah chapter 1. Because this captain, I think, has come to the realisation where he realised there's no... Uh, he's not going home to see his family. And in his anxiousness, he rebukes Jonah for his apathy. Have a look there in verse 6. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us and we will not perish. And we will not perish. That's a very interesting phrase, isn't it? Maybe, Jonah, if you were to pray, your God might have something to do with salvation. Do you see how things have been flipped in reverse? The prophet who's to take a message of salvation to a people who don't know God is mute. And here, the person that Jonah is supposed to be speaking to is is telling him about what God is like and encouraging him to pray. Those words, um, and we will not perish, also uh, we find later on in the book of Jonah, chapter 3, verse 9, and they come out of the mouth of the king of Nineveh. I think what the writer of the book of Jonah is saying here is um, both in the king of Nineveh and also in this captain, you've got these two Gentiles, these two people who don't know God, And the book of Jonah is saying, I think, God is not indifferent to the plight of this world, to the plight of people who do not know him. God is not indifferent. He cares. And God's intention is to save those who don't know him. This is God's heart that they not perish. But this is not Jonah's heart. Jonah does not share his own God's heart. And so they go aloft. The captain goes aloft to cast lots. It's a kind of whodunit kind of situation that they get themselves into. But I want to ask us a question. Here's a question that I want to ask us. As a church, because there are people around us who are scared There are people around us who are searching and grasping. And the question I want to ask is, if they came here, would they find people in the boat with them? 
calling out to God? Would they hear our cry for them? Because we're in a similar situation to Jonah. People are scared and are perishing. And so often we're the ones not speaking. We're the ones who are mute. See, I think there are two things that you should know about us as a church. Firstly, that we believe in, a, in the one true God, the God of Israel. And we believe that he can help indeed. We believe more than that. We believe that he can save. He can save eternally. And that he's done something to make that possible. He sent his son, his one and only son, the Lord Jesus, to take our sins upon him to rise again, to defeat death and to do something about our plight and he is the only one who can save. That's what we believe as a church, firstly. But secondly, there's also something else that you should know about us as a church. You should know that for whatever reason, we find it terribly hard to take this truth that we so believe and to speak about it, to speak about this faith that we confess. We believe that in so many ways it's effective for us and it's of such benefit for us, but so often we struggle with seeing how it could be of benefit to others. And I think we know this. I think we know this. And I think what we need to remember is That just as God is pursuing those who don't know him, we need to remember that God is pursuing us as well. And that we need him, not to just to change the hearts of all those people out there, but we need God to change our hearts too. Because our hearts are so often callous and cold to the suffering, fear and plight of those who don't know God. Secondly, we see in uh, this scene so many ironies. We just picked up on uh, one of them where the captain, the Gentile captain, is telling Jonah what God is like and encouraging him to pray. Jonah, another irony in this section is in verse 14, where um, there in verse 14 we read, O Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. You see, these people who don't know God are actually concerned that what they do, they will be held to account before God for their actions. And so they're hesitant to do anything with Jonah. They have a conscience before God. They know it's wrong to kill someone. And so they're concerned for Jonah's life and his well-being in a way that Jonah is not concerned for them or their well-being. Another uh, example of the irony in this section is where Jonah is called back in verse 2 to preach to the Ninevites. Um, It says there in in the NIV, verse 2, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it. Uh, Literally, in some other translations, ESV have, call out against it. This is what Jonah is to do. He's to preach or call out against the city of Nineveh. But you see there in verse 6, the same word is used. It's, it's hard to see in the NIV, 
But the same word is used in verse 6 where the captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Call out. The same phrase is used. You see, here, the people who don't know God and don't know Jonah's commission to speak about God are calling him to do the very thing that God has asked him to do. There are many ironies in this passage. But the greatest irony is what we see at the end. Because finally in this section we see the largest irony in this section, but we also see the grace of God. Because what you have as this section closes out is you have here on the top deck You have these ignorant unbelievers calling out to their gods who cannot help. And below the deck, you have this follower of God, this man who knows so much about God, who has the knowledge of God. So the question is, what happens when you have the ignorance of the world and the apathy of God's people converge to seemingly stop God's mission? What happens then? What happens is grace. Because that's what enters this picture and this scene, intervening, saving grace. Grace that really ties this whole passage together. Because in verse 7, they're drawing lots, and the lot falls on Jonah. And then it becomes an interrogation of Jonah, verse 8. Tell us who's responsible for making all this trouble. What do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? To ask what people are you in the ancient world is to ask, who is your God? And Jonah responds. Perhaps for a moment of honesty, as it's drawn out of him, as he has no other option, his last option is to do what should have been his first option option. He says there in verse 9, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the land. You see, it's only when Jonah is put under pressure. It's only when there's no other alternative that he begins to speak about this God who he knows. He begins to speak about what this God who we he begins to speak about this God who he knows and what he has done. He has made the land and the sea. He controls this world. And so Jonah is this reluctant, reluctant speaker of God's word, a reluctant prophet. He says there, I don't know if he says it sheepishly. But I think I would have been sheepish if I was Jonah. He says, I worship or fear the Lord. Which is strange, isn't it? I mean, here he is. This storm has come. These people are perishing. They're so desperate. They're basically throttling by the throat saying, what are you on about? And then he says, oh yeah, and I follow the Lord. You see the disconnect? I mean, what what is Jonah's definition of worship here? He's running from the presence of God. He's doing anything other than worshipping God. 
But I think it's the same reluctance and disconnect that's in our hearts through this faltering testimony of this failed prophet. Somehow, these sailors are confronted with the reality of God. Because what happens next is dramatic. I mean, it seems like it's a disaster. And then, because of grace, because of God's kindness, because of God entering with love, there is an incredible transformation that occurs. And, in fact, a new fear comes upon these sailors. We saw it in verse 5, that they're afraid of the storm. But with this transformation, they're not less scared. In fact, they are more scared. Have a look at verse 10. This terrified them. And they asked, what have you done? What terrified them? The words of a failed, reluctant prophet. The reluctant confession of what was true about God. What scared them and what was powerful was not Jonah and his abilities, his intellect, his understanding. What was powerful was what he said about God. It was true and it was simple and God used that. And these hardened mariners, these sailors begin to come to the reality that there is a God, that he is there, that he's not silent and that he will hold the world to account. And they are afraid. And that's what happens when we give our testimony. So often we're the ones who are scared when someone asks us, what do you believe as a Christian? Have you been asked that question? And I don't know about you, but I, you know, that, that's, a, that's a moment of anxiety for many of us. What do you believe as a Christian? Um, I was reading this book a couple of months ago, and it, uh, in it, it's called Confronting Christianity, 12 Hard Questions for the World's Largest Religion by Rebecca McLaughlin. And um, I heard her say in an interview uh, that you know, she looks for opportunities and she was having this discussion with some, I think they were leading, some of the world's leading scientists. And she made some point, uh, and uh, they said, oh, you're crazy. And she responded in this one, I wrote it down. She said, you think I'm crazy? I believe that the whole entire history of humanity revolves around a first century Jewish man who was crucified and was supposedly raised from the dead. It's interesting, there, there's just a testimony, a confession of what she believes. And I think there's a great reminder for us of the power of confessing from our hearts, quite simply, what we believe as Christians, that we do believe that the whole entire history of our world revolves around a first-century Jewish peasant who died and was supposedly raised from the dead. See, people come face-to-face with the reality of God through what? Through faltering, weak truth that we speak. 
This is how people come to a knowledge, a saving knowledge of God. It's through us. And it's through our words of simple truth about God. See, these men no longer they, these men realized that they no longer had to face a storm. They realized that there was something more fearful, someone more fearful to face. They needed to face God. And so, verse 16, these men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. See, because fear is not where it ends. This section ends in the worship of God. These men who were crying out to gods who could not help them now cry to the God who can and begin to worship him. The God of Israel. The God who revealed himself in Jesus. The God whose love is displayed on the cross. and The God who conquered death in the resurrection. This is the God that they are now worshipping. And how did they come from fear of God to this worshipful... Sorry, how did they come from fear to worshipful worshipful fear of him. We don't know exactly, but we can put it together. Jonah offered a testimony of who God is in a moment of helplessness, and God used that. And he extends his mercy to those sailors. And we'll see later as the book goes on to the Ninevites as well. And they came to worship God because of his grace. And that moment where God came in in his grace, that moment invaded that ship. And the biggest irony of all is seen, the man who is running from his mission to call the nations to a faith in God ends up fulfilling it. Why? Because God is at work despite us. God is at work through us. God is at work when we feel like failures, Was Jonah at the height of his spiritual journey when God used him so powerfully in this moment? No, he was at the very lowest. We feel like the only time that we can say anything about God is when we reach some form of spiritual height or intellectual competency. But God uses the truth about who he is in simple ways and in powerful ways, and we need to remember that because God is at work despite our fear and our failure, and he will extend his message of salvation to the world, and he'll do it through you and me, whether we like it or not. Amen. Please stand as we